Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host today, Paige Niedringhaus, and I am joined by our panelists, Jack Harrington. Hello. And TJ Van Toll. Hey everybody. And our special guest today is Tanya Rasha. Welcome, Tanya. Hi, thank you. So Tanya, before we get started, tell us a little bit about why you're famous and what our listeners should know about you. Well, I didn't know I was famous, though I will say that one time someone on a dating app was like, are you the one who writes those articles? So I guess that's famous. (laughs) (laughs) That's famous. (laughs) Yeah, I've been writing on my blog since 2015. So I feel like you just kind of keep going, keep writing and the momentum will kind of build like a snowball and people will start knowing who you are. So I guess that would be (laughs) why people know who I am. But yeah, I started in about 2015. I used to work as a chef for about almost a decade before that. So yeah, changed careers in 2015, started blogging about it, blogging and everything that I learned along the way and just sharing that with the world. So that's uh, kind of me in a nutshell. Did you do a boot camp or a code school? Um, you... No, I actually, technically I started making my first website in like 1998. So it was kind of always a little hobby on the side. Don't really know how I didn't put that together that it's a good career. <laughs> but yeah, I went to culinary school and then in 2015, I was like, this is just not for me. What do I actually like? Realized that the thing I do for fun, I can actually make money and a living doing it. So yeah, I just kind of did a lot of self-study, you know, the internet, everything you want to learn is out there if you look hard enough. So indeed, learning and writing about it. That's awesome. Well done. Thank you. So Tanya, one of the most recent articles that you've written about is React Architecture, which is very prescient to this podcast since we're mostly about React and all things pertaining to it. So could you give us some of your thoughts on how you would go about structuring a React application? Yeah, I wrote that article just because I've seen it done so many different ways. And when you look up articles about it, you'll either find something that's kind of outdated or just lots of differing opinions. So I figured, why not throw another opinion into the mix? (laughs) There are now 14 competing standards. But yeah, so like the thing that I like to kind of do is make it domain based. So instead of just having like one folder for components that contain all your components and one folder for containers, that's like a way that people had done it frequently in the past was like, if a component uses Redux, it's a container. So they would make a containers folder for anything that was a quote unquote, smart component. And then you just throw a bunch of stuff in there, it starts to get kind of, it's hard to just look at the code and figure out what's going on. So I like to kind of have like a use directory that said, like, if you have a users page, you have a users folder in there. And now all the local components and everything that pertains only to users in that section. If it's like a book app, you'd have a slash books, you'd have a slash uh, authors, you know? So it's really easy to just look at the code and be like, okay, I have a pretty good idea of what the main sections of this app are just from looking at that. And then you can still have, you know, a shared components folder for, for things that all the views will use. And then like the store is global. So you can make a, a store or a Redux folder, you know, whatever state management you're doing. But just keeping all the sections that are local to each other just kind of together makes it easy to reason about what's going on. So yeah, I'm currently kind of refactoring the code at my work to do that. So it's like halfway moved onto that system. And at some other jobs, they have done it that way. So I've kind of, I've seen it work. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it would help also in when you want to refactor into like a library and just pull out 
the user and, and most of its dependencies, yeah. it'd pretty easily refactor out just that as opposed to like, oh, wait, there's half a user stuck over in the components and there's half of the light. Yeah. Yeah. And also that's, teams that's right. are working on different sections. Like right now, that's yeah. that, my current job is like one team working on one feature, one kind of domain of things. And they're pretty much localized to that that folder. So if it's not too controversial, then what do you think about mono repos? Yeah, that is pretty controversial because um, <laughs> that's <laughs> even at my, my current position, like right now it's a mono repo and there's a lot of discussion about whether it should be mono repos or whether it should move over to microservices. Definitely one of those things where there's pros and cons either way. I would say that I lean a little bit more towards microservices just because everything together starts to get a bit much. Like there's a lot of PRs in the repo. There's a lot of moving parts all at once. I kind of like separating things into domains where like this one team is working in this one repo and they have full control yeah. over it and the pipelines don't have to run everything. It just runs the one thing that's relevant to them. So I'm kind of- Real quick for our, for our listeners that might not know what a microservice is, and maybe for me too, maybe you could explain like a little bit of what you mean by the term, but like a maybe like a small example too of what that might look like. I would say like for example, if you have an API and this API just handles the users or the organizations or something, you could have a repo that's just the organization's API, and you know it doesn't care about the front end, it's just completely sequestered into its own quote-unquote microservice, as opposed to it being a folder within the mono repo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an example, my team was completely microservices driven when I worked for Home Depot. So we had 17 backing services that, that backed up our front end React and Angular UIs. But it was things like we had a cart, we had a checkout service, we had APIs that were just user authentication and user information. I mean, it was, there were tons and tons of just these little pieces that all melded together to form this one awesome Voltron application that was, (laughs) that's really the the idea behind microservices. And, And the benefit of that is if you have lots of them, then you can only make changes to one and deploy that out and it will impact the other one's you know, in a good way. But the the other thing is when you have to make changes to multiples at the same time, then you have to keep track of all of them and make sure they go out in the right order and, you know, the right versions are hooked together. And so it can get a little bit hairy in that regard, but it also, I think, makes for more incremental changes, makes them easier. So it's really kind of a, it's a toss up of what your team prefers. <laughs> Yeah, definitely pros and cons there. Like having the mono repo had the advantage of I could just do a Docker compose up and every single service was up locally. I didn't have to check out a bunch of different repos or have, you know, some sort of system to do that or be pulling them from images somewhere else. I could actually work on everything locally at once. But yeah, what you were doing there kind of sounds like my previous job where I worked for the parent company of Taco Bell, Pizza Hut and KFC. Yum. And, and they also, they had microservices for, you know, for cart and shopping and all that. And, uh, one thing that we were working towards there was something I hadn't heard of before, which is called a, a backend for front end or BFF. So basically it would be like your React app. It's like a completely, it's on a CDN. It's, it's completely static. It goes out to this BFF and then that goes to all the microservices. So you can technically kind of similar to maybe like a GraphQL server even where you are 
centralizing everything there so that the front end can receive the data exactly as it wants, as opposed to the front end having to know about 17 different like services. All it knows about is the one centralized back end that is specific for that front end. That is definitely a new term for me, BFF. So just so I, which is a very fun term too, (laughs) just so I'm understanding this in my head, this is more like you have like a dedicated, almost like one other repo that's like aggregating all of your different services more or less. So like the front end has one thing to talk to and you would say like, I I like the Taco Bell example. So you'd have like a slash tacos and then your, (laughs) your BFF would know like, okay, I know for slash tacos, I need to talk to this microservice, but you sort of use that as a way of hiding your abstraction from the front end, if I'm understanding this correctly. And and one of the good benefits about it is instead of having to handle authentication in 17 different services, you can just handle it in one spot that you handle all Uh, like you're logged in or not via the BFF. And then it only, uh, the services are only concerned with that going through from the back end. So the one I wrote was in TypeScript and Node, but all the services Actually, there, yeah, they were all in Node. Currently, I'm working at a Python shop, which I'm less familiar with. Yeah, one of the things you want to get away from in this area is like what they call the N plus one anti-pattern, which is when you're doing these microservices thing, you make one request, and that one request gets back a bunch of records, and they need to make a bunch more requests to resolve those records. And the nice thing about an aggregation layer like that in GraphQL is that that GraphQL server, which is in essentially the same backplane as all the all the microservices, can go and do that really efficiently and in parallel for you, as opposed to like wasting the customer's bandwidth over their 5G LTE connection to do all that work. You know, you can basically make one request to that GraphQL server, and it does all all that work, and then brings you back exactly the payload that you want. And you can do cool things with GraphQL, like multi, make multiple requests within a single make multiple queries within a single request and stuff like that. So, you know, it's a great standard for that. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have had nightmare jobs in the past where it was um, not kidding, like a good 11 to 12 API calls to create a user. Something that GraphQL can definitely (laughs) be used for. Even if you have to to use those 11 APIs, the GraphQL can aggregate APIs as well as directly from the database. So you could just, you could still just make, one request out to the GraphQL server and it can handle all those requests behind the scenes. Yeah, and then give you the payload you want, right? As opposed to the usual thing, which is in REST thing where you either get way too much data and you end up throwing away 90% <laughs> of it. You're, I just want you know, the, the customer name, you know, and then you get everything else or you get too little and you need to make multiple requests to go and get the data that you need. So it, it gives you like the perfect right size piece of data. Yeah, or or making your the REST API so complicated that it's like I want the pool, or I want the the meeting <laughs> or I want the pool. Yes. You, know, you have to like yeah. manually implement that as opposed to just GraphQL, where it's like I only right, want in the query name. where you got every field listed. Yeah, yeah, it's the worst if you're coding like mm-hmm. a React table on the front end, and the all request gives you ninety percent of the data you need, but there's one extra thing that you need. So now you have to go and make like an extra you know, <laughs> request for every single row, which is not good. <laughs> right. And that row in that it, the cell is always off at the way end and nobody ever looks at it and you're still getting it. Yeah. You're like, ah! <laughs> yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, the only the only thing that I've seen that kind of maybe is a drawback to GraphQL is 
for instance, not being able to see what all the fields are that are available or not being able to easily just, you know, do a select star and then see absolutely everything that's in that database. But I think that you're right, the ability to combine various data sources to make the perfect data shape that you need probably outweighs those benefits, then it just falls to whichever teams are maintaining those APIs or those databases to be able to have decent documentation to tell you what's available and what the, you know, correct column name is or or things like that to be able to get the data. But yeah, it's pretty, it's a pretty awesome improvement, I think, from the REST API model that we're pretty familiar with at this point. Yeah, definitely. Me too. I was getting used to like not just being able to see everything all at once. <laughs> but the fact that it's self-documenting is, is kind of nice. You can open a graphical and just see everything that's available. I haven't used it in production yet, but um, I do have a hackathon coming up at my job. So I'm planning on maybe creating a chat server with it or something. That should be fun. Oh, yeah. GraphQL subscriptions are awesome for that. Yeah. So good. Looking forward to learning about that. Sorry, this is a brand new kitten. He's uh, a... <laughs> <laughs> it's just that they're they're a fan of GraphQL. I mean, they you yeah, hear it and they come running. running. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now, I like the bit about the that. So one thing about GraphQL, I do like, are really just any sort of this, this sort of BFF pattern or something that takes your data and, and sort of customizes it for the front end. Because I some of my horror stories is I've I've worked with a lot of APIs that are very very noisy, like AKA they'll spit back more data than you ever knew existed related to a topic. <laughs> and I think the downside of that is it really can make debugging and just like sort of your developer experience way worse because sometimes you need to go like, oh, what was that value again? And then you're looking in the network tab and you have to sift through this mountain of data. So you can't really pull out a trend from the one thing you're looking for. You have to go in and like put in some custom logging or something to get that information out. Oh, yeah. Whereas if you if you've really trimmed that down to like, okay, I know this is a noisy API, but my front end just needs these two values, that it makes your debugging like way easier when then all of a sudden your network tab is just like, oh, here's just these these two values. It only takes me a half second to see the sort of thing I'm looking for. So that's kind of fun. Like whether you use GraphQL to accomplish that or like you said, some sort of intermediate server, it really helps. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how that works because I have yet to experience an actual GraphQL server in like a big production. You know, I've, I've seen little implementations. I've made my own little implementations, but I'd like to see how it performs in, in like a large corporate entity. <laughs> well, I think it's also this related to folder structure and such as well. It, it's always a bit of a it depends situation too because the more, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why folder structure has 14 different standards and counting is because the best folder structure depends on what you're <laughs> building and the best microservice architecture depends on what you're building. And I think this sort of thing, especially like the more complicated your API structure is, like the more, the bigger the organization, presumably the more you stand to benefit from this. Because if you're writing something for your small blog or whatever, you're probably not going to see the benefit of splitting all this up and trimming down the data. But the bigger you get, the more things like this start to add up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's definitely overkill for a lot of small cases. I mean, fun if you want to learn it, but not necessarily the most practical. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if it, if it helps, we use it at so, Nike. Tanya, you said that... Really well, so... Well, that's awesome. Actually, Jack, did you get to 
So you got to see a GraphQL application in at production oh, yeah, scale. So what were some of the yeah yeah yeah. So what were some of the patterns um, that you used to kind of keep stuff organized? Yeah. So what we built was a modular GraphQL server and you could plug into it. And so each team that had their own data needs could go and basically just plug in their schema and their resolvers and then all get merged. And it was it was cool. There were some issues around, around doing the management of that, for sure. But from the front end, it definitely helped in the ability for both web and mobile to be able to pick and choose their fields and and what they needed, which is in, in particularly in the mobile sense, very important. They really wanted to be able to control that payload size because again, you're paying for you know, that 5G, whatever, you know, you're paying for every byte, right? Or the customer is. You don't want to be known as the app that like <laughs> brings a ton of data where it's not needed. So that was that was really good. And it did it it absolutely scaled. And you were able to share the same GraphQL server between like web and mobile? Yeah. So on the front end side of this, there are there is the corresponding architecture and that's uh, micro front ends. Do you have any take on micro front ends? I don't know that I'm familiar with that. Oh, okay. So yeah, this is basically you would do the same sort of thing where you pull out like a piece of the UI, like for example, user login. And then you could actually share that login component as a runtime dependency between you know, each app. And so that, you know, you'd only have like one login, one canonical like login. And anytime that login was pushed, then you'd get all the apps would get that, that login immediately. It's kind of like the like NPM sharing, mm-hmm. but just kind of up at the runtime level. Yeah, I can definitely see that being useful for authentication, kind of like a single sign-on type of thing. Oh, sure. But I mean, you could do it for the header, you can do it for like product carousel, you could do it for, you know, all, all, all of that kind of stuff. So it's, and the, the idea being, it's the same sort of idea as with microservices, right? You want each team, you could have basically a product carousel team and you can have that, that product carousel team just, all they do is they make that product carousel kick ass, right? And so, you know, like they, they can then independently deploy that. Yeah, or, or like you said, the navigation, like you're able to very easily remain consistent between different products by all sharing that. That, that definitely sounds like a, an interesting concept. I don't think I've worked somewhere quite big enough where they had a use case for it, which is probably why I haven't seen it. But I could, yeah, sure. the bigger the company, the more you kind of want to standardize <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, same. But I've definitely worked at companies where the header is like, always inconsistent across uh, like applications i feel like that's one of the more common dev just like stupid common dev problems of like <laughs> marketing really wants the this link but it's only on what this page but not this one why is that oh god yeah also something that i've encountered <laughs> when i don't know if you've ever heard of like the strangler vine pattern of refactoring where like let's say your whole you have an old site and then there's a new site that's going to use all brand new technology and, you know, brand new look. Instead of trying to slowly update piece by piece everything, you kind of say, like, I'm going to make just the users page have the new one. Mm. And then everything else is still old. So when you click on slash users, you're taken to a whole new layout, a whole <laughs> new navigation. It looks like a totally different website. And then you go back to authors and it's the old page. So, you know, when trying to do refactors i've seen both ways of either like slowly updating page by page to something totally brand new everything the way you want it or slowly updating everything at once i don't know if you have any opinions on what you think is the better way to move forward for refactoring well i have been a developer on one of those frankenstein sites 
And we did exactly what you're describing, which is we had to go pretty much page by page building out the new look and feel, which was a React app. And then the user would get routed back to the old Angular app for depending on which page they were on. And if it had been up to the dev team entirely, we totally would have just shut it down and rebuilt the whole thing and then released it as one giant new application. But because we had business partners and users who wanted new features, it was more of a much longer much more arduous process to figure out how to go back and forth between the two and share the data and get what everybody needed. And it didn't, it wasn't the ideal situation, but we made it work. And everybody was mildly happy with the outcome because we kept delivering new features to product. We got to build a newer application that used best, better technology. And eventually it was done. So I guess in the end, everybody won, but it certainly wouldn't have been our first choice if it was just the devs making decisions. <laughs> yeah, that does sound like a nightmare to have an Angular and a React app running simultaneously and intertwined. <laughs> but if that's the only way to get off of the Angular to React, I guess it's worth the pain. That's actually the nice scenario, is having the Angular one <laughs> at uh, Walmart. I think we had Thorax in our monolith. It was like a Java Java server pages monolith that was serving up Thorax, which is like backbone kind of thing. And then at, I think, Nike, the monolith was Java again. And I think there was jQuery or even older. jQuery type stuff. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was exactly the same thing. So there's this idea of monolith busting. And they just, you know, that's, you have the big JSP app. It's on the old stuff. Then you start peeling off one by one and it starts with you know either cart or checkout or something and then you you know kind of go one by one but like on the first one it's great everybody's like, yeah this is the best thing ever yeah you know wow we're so much more you know able to release all the time it's great and then you know the second one comes around and it's like wait a second hold on yeah we don't want to re-implement the header and the footer we want to take that from the first team and then it's like, uh oh, wait, now we need a header footer team because, and it's, ah, it just starts getting like the second, the second one is always where the romance kind of like gets iffy when it comes to, you know, the, the migration between the monolith and the, the micro front end apps. Yeah, I can so, imagine so, feel very accomplished at first, but then it just kind of starts to become yeah. a slog. <laughs> I think the biggest thing to me is those sorts of conversions are way easier if they're under the hood type changes, if they're not, affecting the user's UI, because I think the the horror part of the situation, the, the whole the thing that makes it the Frankenstein is the the user's experience. Like if the user doesn't know they're switching between Angular, React or whatever Java server pages monstrosity, then it doesn't matter all that much. Like, I, I mean, you don't want there to be delays. It's probably going to be slower. But as long as the UI is somewhat consistent, I think that's more OK. But like I, I tr I've always tried to avoid situations where the users like in one system or thinks they're in one system and looks like they're jumping between several different apps. So I, I remember back when I worked in big insurance, we we were we were updating some sites because at the time everything was built to be IE six only, and then at some point we just the business had people that wanted to use their stuff in browsers other than IE six and turns out they didn't work. And so we had to do this massive sort of conversion. And we did it a page at a time, but we we put in a 
CSS class on the the basically top level, the HTML tag or whatever that was just old. And old gave you this ability to write like these hacks that were like short term, like try to just make this. There were some global hacks that tried to make this paint it like the old system so that when everything was done, we would just remove old. We'd remove everything with an old prefix and then everything would be new, um, which I I don't know. It It worked out okay, I guess. It did lead to a lot of wasted time writing temporary CSS that only lived for six months or whatever. But at least the user didn't have this like wildly different system to use while we were doing this process. Yeah, I even remember Microsoft having like CSS where you could target versions of IE. Oh, yeah. If IE6, Mm -hmm. then do this. But yeah, when it comes to like an app that's wildly different, I have had I have seen that happen with like Chase and PayPal. And sometimes I'll end up a page that's like so old. I'm like, am I being scammed? (laughs) Yes. Because that's like 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) That's like banking and also government sites. I've hit this a lot where like I go to renew my driver's license and I'm on one site and I click a link and it looks like I get teleported back 20 years. And Mm -hmm. you really start to question. Like I think sometimes, sometimes as technical users, we almost outthink ourselves because like we know threat models and we look at these things we're always questioning anytime some radical new system pops up like what just happened there and i'm gonna put my social security number in here <laughs> I'm always, I'm always nervous on the government website because they always look like they were built in like 1999 <laughs> yeah and i'm like, because a lot of them were yes exactly like yeah. i usually i'm the kind of person who i see a front-end design and i assume the back-end level of security matches it so if the it's yeah, not necessarily so. true, but if I see something that looks really clean, it's using modern standards on the outside, I assume, okay, they're probably doing the right stuff when it comes to protecting my data. But when it looks like just that old, I'm, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And half the time, you submit something and it doesn't work, so you have to look at dev tools to see what happened. <laughs> yes, yeah. You see where the exactly. network call see- failed. Right. Or yeah, you see the JavaScript blow up and you're like, oh, okay, you didn't validate this field correctly. Yeah. And you're like, oh, what? Really? How is it still here? <laughs> and knowing what and then you sub <laughs> Yeah, and you submit the very specific bug report. I see that on minified line blah 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 in your dot yes. index.js file. <laughs> I have done that before, like LinkedIn and uh, me too. Yeah. And Same. something and they're like, I'm sorry, you can't I'm like no. I'm not having a problem. I'm just reporting a bug to you. <laughs> yeah. A fully qualified Jira down to the line number. Here you go. Just copy this paste this into Jira and your, your devs will know what to do. You, yeah, you're good. So what is your feeling on CSS? Like, do you like to use the separated SAS or SCSS? Or do you like styled components? What is your approach to doing CSS for these types of projects? I feel like that's such a loaded question these days because everyone is very fiercely in some camp or another. Um, I will say that I have looked in styled components. I've tried to use it. I have, and I just don't see the benefits of it outweighing other methods. I see why people like it. Maybe it's because I've been doing CSS since like its inception. So I'm just very familiar with that. And I feel like I can organize it in a way that's somewhat maintainable. I mean, styles are just hard. It's it's hard and it's messy. And actually, one of my first open source projects that I made was a SAS 
kind of framework for like a very a much less bloated kind of bootstrap thing that you hook into. And I use that to develop like all of my early websites. So I got really used to SAS. Even just plain CSS is kind of verbose, but easy to reason about. But like with styled components and CSS and JS, one, it's hard to debug. The DOM just gets full of these random class names. It's hard to find. Maybe I haven't delved into it enough to know like the debugging methods, but you end up making a lot of components. And even in some cases where maybe it didn't need to be its own component, it could have passed that style down through the, the cascading aspect of CSS. So I'm personally, I just haven't, I'm not a huge fan of the CSS and JS whole environment. And, and same with Tailwind. I know people really love that one. I use it. I think it's really good for prototyping. I'm sorry if any of you are like invested. <laughs> you come on React Roundup. You better, you better not talk bad about that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan. These guys aren't, but that's okay. Yeah, say like, did you get the memo before the show? No, I definitely see how that. I, I would prefer that to style component still. I, it keeps it. There's consistency. There's an API. The, the only downside there, I think, is just the DOM is huge from it, but pros and cons, you know, I, I can see that one working. Uh, I haven't delved into enough. I'm sure you can make your own themes with it to make it cleaner, less overrides. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I still, SAS is still probably my favorite one if you, if you set it up well. I don't know. Other thoughts? <laughs> so, okay. So if you're, let's say that you're doing SAS, which is the way that my team operated before. Now my team uses styles in RJSX, but not CSS and JS. It's really awful. I, th- I guess it's like the most basic way that you can style a, a TSX or a JSX component. And I really dislike it, but it wasn't my decision. But if you were using SAS, do you like to keep, <laughs> do you like to keep your CSS file? Like if you have header.js or JSX, are you going to also have header.css or scss and just have those kind of be a one-to-one comparison with each other? Yeah, that's also a difficult question because you can either have like one folder full of styles and like, let's say in SAS, you have your buttons.css and you have your form and you have, so it like does all the the base components. But yeah, when it comes to localized stuff, do you have a CSS file next to each component? Is it next to some components? Is it only in the parent component? That's also something I brought up in that React architecture um, article to bring it back is, you know, one way of doing things is like, let's say you have the users section and you have users page. You put users page in a folder and now you have users page.js or .psx or whatever for the component and then users page.css for the styles and then user page.test next to it or do you have them in their own test folder? or user page.stories if you're using Storybook. So like, do you keep everything together or do you keep everything that it's like together, but apart? And I think that's like the biggest architectural decision you have to make, like which one do you want to go with? Because I would rather just all do it one way or all do it the other way, but not have a big mix if possible. And I haven't quite figured out which one is better. Yeah, I will say because I'm I'm very much in line with you in just in terms of CSS thinking. I've I've struggled to come around with CSS and JavaScript, 
I'm starting to come around with Tailwind, but like traditionally, if you asked me to, to design CSS for a project, I would just put on SAS. I would just write some SAS files and organize them. I will say one of the things that I like about Tailwind, which is one of the reasons I'm starting to come around a little bit, is it does make a lot of these like folder structure things sort of a moot point because a lot of your styles are just right in there on the components you're writing. So it is cluttery. It does sort of uh, clutter up your HTML a little bit. But the benefit is that, well, your styles are there. So it's there's less hunting around for, well, does this belong in the header? If, if this is a button in the header, does it belong in like a buttons file or the, the header file? Like if I need to refactor this and move this around, my styles kind of in a way come with me. There's less like dual maintenance. So that is one benefit, but at a cost of like uh, a lot more verbosity in the, the markup you write too. Long class names. That's yeah, really that's it. You know. Yeah. yeah but that's it. I mean, really. Yeah, that is the one negative, but it's hard to just look at something and know exactly what it's doing from like the 20 classes that are in it. I think probably <laughs> if you get used to it, I don't know in Tailwind if there's a way to combine like do it, put all the classes in one that you share. I don't, I don't know if that's possible. There are post-processors that will combine for efficiency's sake for you later. And there's also an IntelliSense thing in VS Code that you can add in and as an extension and literally to just kind of hint as you're typing, like, you know, BG blue, and it'll show like all the different variations of blue and the different colors and stuff. It's, it's actually really nice. My concern would be like, if you wanted to refactor things completely, I feel like it would be much harder with, like, for example, in SAS, I would just have a variables folder and I have primary color in there. If mm-hmm. I want to make the entire site red themed instead of blue themed, I would just have to update that variable instead of finding BG blue all over the place and changing it maybe. Yeah, no, you can do it symbolically like that. You can do like, you can create a primary and a secondary and then you can have BG primary yeah. And then, you know, 500, which would be how, how blue or how, how whatever, yeah. you know, do you want it? I mean, you can definitely do that. That for sure. You can add variables and for sure and get it symbolically like that. The only difference is you're not going to have that. You're definitely giving away the, the bootstrappy kind of thing of having BTN, mm-hmm. you know, and BTN okay, and BTN error or whatever, you know, different news, which is, you know, that's a big, that's a big thing, right? You know, so really depends on there's a, that's the that terrible answer that we always give like it depends so it would be like um, in that case you would make a react button component that you pass props to yeah. and then the tailwind classes that are applied would be based on the props of the button so exactly yeah, yeah and there's clsx but either way you're solving the same problems yeah yeah and if you want more of a reacty style of tailwind there's a, a great library called chakra UI. Yeah, I've seen that one. It's you know, very pretty. Yeah, and it and it has all that. You know, so all of the the kind of tailwindy type stuff is in props. Mm-hmm. So you want a little bit of extra margin on the x axis. You do mx equals five, and now you now it's got some margin. You know, and and it just makes it really easy to tweak UI like that. That's one of the things that I like about Tailwind is it's so easy. It's just like add in a class. Oh, I need a little bit more margin on the top. Cool. Mt ten done. I once for a different job did. It used the material UI framework, and I feel like that was mm. like the worst of all worlds because it's <laughs> JavaScript, but it's not CSS and JS, it's not style components, it's not emotion, it's like its own thing. So you have to really buy, like, I got used to it after a while, but you're really buying into their way of doing it. So, and that knowledge is not transferable to any other system. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That being said, um, material is like awesome accessibility wise. Oh yeah, I loved it. Like I actually rec- like when I first started at my current job, I'm like maybe we should use material because it's currently on Semantic, which has its own problems. And I don't know. I, I've I've worked with a lot of Semantic framework websites, so I've gotten used to it. But yeah, I don't know what the best framework option is these days. I think I've seen one also called Blueprint that looked really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there there are definitely more things out there to explore. But Material is just great out of the box, especially if you don't have a designer and you just have developers that don't need to put much, like they just need to make something functional. Material, yeah, it looks everything. good. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah. But it also looks like... Yeah, another one that's pretty good. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Twitter with Bootstrap. You're like, oh, that's Twitter blue right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but another one that I've had decent success with is ant design which is very tightly coupled with originally it was built for react so the components right out of the box look great when you want to change the styling of them beyond some of the really basic stuff though like you know what is your primary color what's your secondary color things like that it gets really ugly really fast in your your own css but same idea you know it's very very streamlined and very much you just drop this component in it's there it looks great it it's responsive it does what you need it to do but don't try to make it too customized then you're gonna have problems <laughs> yeah i've used ant design in the past as far as i've been able to tell so far it had like the best table components of any framework it could do everything it handled async stuff built in all the sorting filtering pagination that's actually something else. My most recent article uh, was like making sorting, filtering, and pagination from scratch without any framework. So I do think oh, cool. that can be an option for a lot of people. But like when I was just starting off, I didn't necessarily know how to do that, or it would it would have just taken way too long. Probably wouldn't have been very good. So having like Ant Design to just pull that in uh, was great. So. Highly recommend that framework for complex components like that. There's a pay for X grid, I think, that goes with material. It's actually adds on a ton of stuff from the material data grid. And it, it's solid. Yeah. Tables is just a problem that you have to solve in every single... Any front end job you have, you're probably going to have a table that needs to handle sorting, filtering, and pagination. <laughs> <laughs> Any front end job you have, you're probably going to have a table that needs to handle sorting, filtering, and pagination. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and maybe selection while you're at it. <laughs> yeah. Selecting, both delete. Multiple well, selection. Tanya, this has been... De- hide and show detail. <laughs> this has been great. Is there anything in terms of React architecture or other things that you think we haven't really talked about yet that we should touch on? Um... There's nothing in specific that comes to the top of my head. I mean, if I were to summarize it in one sentence, I just think making it domain-based, thinking of things in terms of the domain that it's in as opposed to the function that it serves. Like instead of putting everything in components, folders, putting them in domain-based folders. So I feel like doing that has just helped me make a code base that's easier to navigate, easier for multiple teams to work in. That's awesome. Cool. Well, we will we will have all of the links to your articles, your website, everything 
are you available on Twitter or how would people best get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's just my full name, which is unfortunately not very easy to spell. TanyaRasha.com. And so, I mean, R-A-S-C-I-A. I'm trying to be a little bit more active on there because it's like a good way to communicate with other developers and see what's going on. And then my website, you can go to Tanya.dev and that'll take you there. So that one's a little bit easier. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Score on Perfect. that domain name right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, immediately. Nice. <laughs> I miss out on the I wasn't going to miss out again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Done. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. So now is the section where we move into picks. And this is things that we would like to recommend to listeners that we've found either useful or cool or just fun things to share. So TJ, would you like to start us off this week? Sure. I'm going to pick a service called Edge Impulse. So they are a company that helps you build machine learning models. And it's kind of slick because machine learning models aren't easy to build. Uh, they're kind of notoriously math heavy and difficult. And they've got a UI that makes it quite a bit simpler. Um, and it, it'll it do things like image recognition. So if you need to teach your code to look for a certain whatever, right, a certain type of objects, it has ways of you can upload images to teach it how to find that. It'll also work with sound too. So a lot of their stuff is if you're taking, say, samples of a machine working and you want to tell it what this is what normal operation sounds like, this is when something goes wrong, you can sort of teach a model that way and then have some sensor that maybe notifies you when a machine sounds off so that someone could come take a look. And mostly I'm picking it because I think their UI is pretty slick. So if you need to do any sort of <laughs> ML work with models, I'd check it out. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. So, Jack, what would you like to pick this week? Uh, so this week, I'm going to go with something technical, which is not what I usually do. But uh, it's Tan Insla Tanner Inslee's React Location, which is kind of a competitor with React Router. I mean, I, I know we've all been working with React Router forever, and it's like the industry standard thing. But it's nice to see somebody take a new look at it, a fresh look at it. And that's what Tanner Inslee's done with this React Location router. And I, he's really nicely handled that kind of preloading thing where you don't want to go to the route before you've actually loaded the data for the route because you don't want to put you know spinners when you get there sort of thing and he's made it just super easy and it kind of it's just yet another part of his tan stack i guess which is his like stack of like react query and a couple other libraries and anyway, react query is the most most popular but and then you know and then this new one react location which is pretty cool nice that is not one that I've heard of, but I am sort of familiar with the tan stack. So it's cool to see that he's still adding on to that and expanding his empire as he goes. <laughs> <laughs> so Tanya, what would you like to recommend to our listeners this week? Well, as far as something technical, and I promise I'm not getting paid to say this, but my site is hosted on Netlify and it's just like, I use it for everything. It's so easy to deploy static sites. And they clearly care about the open source and learning community because my website, they have hosted under like the open source. It's like, you know, it's free for me because it's all learning resources for everybody else. So the fact that they were kind enough to do that, I really appreciate. So if I would probably throw that out there. If you have, React, if you have just front end only sites, it's, it's extremely easy to deploy them and watch your deployments and 
see your pipelines and deploy multiple branches. And it's just, I use it for everything. So I would probably throw that out. Yeah, Netlify is great That's, stuff. Yeah, same. I love Netlify. I host my personal site on it as well. It's it's so awesome and easy. I love it. Cool. So my recommendation for this week is going to also be a technical resource. And it's actually a course that I've been meaning to get into, which is TypeScript. Because although our company uses TypeScript, and one of the code bases that I work on is based in TypeScript, I've never really learned it in any formal sense of the way. So I found a really great thing called Full Stack React with TypeScript. And it's on, it's actually on a company called New Line, which I authored a book for or a course for as well. But I'm using the resources that they have. And so far, it's been really, really good and illuminating to, you know, I can figure out how to get there, but I'm not really sure why I'm writing code the way that I'm writing it for TypeScript. So it's been good for me to actually build the fundamentals under it. So I've been uh, enjoying it a lot. The The code examples are really clear and the writing style is really easy to follow. So I'm a fan. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you all again for joining us for this episode of React Roundup. Tanya, thank you for coming on and being our guest. Thanks so much for having me. And we will catch everyone on the next episode. See you next time. <laughs>